In the last episode of the podcast, we asked the question, how do I optimize hydration for race day? We talked about all the theoretical aspects of that, but what does it actually feel like to hyperhydrate with glycerol or sodium before a race? And does loading up on fluid the day before a race help as well? So today we're joined by Tokyo Olympian Ellie Pashley, who ran the marathon in Tokyo, and she shares her experience trialing both glycerol and sodium loading in preparation for the Olympics, what she learned from that experience, what she ultimately used for the marathon in Sapporo, and how that ended up working out. We'll also discuss how Ellie monitors her hydration on a day-to-day basis, her drinking habits, and much, much more. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name's Alan McCubbin and together with my co-host Steph Gaskell, we're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne. Combined, we have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance, whether they're complete beginners all the way through to professional and Olympic athletes. Today, it is episode 52B, How Do I Optimize Hydration for Race Day? And as I said, we're joined by Ellie Pashley, Olympian in the marathon at the Tokyo Games in 2021. Now, as you've noticed, I'm not joined today by my co-host, Steph Gaskell. Unfortunately, Steph's a bit unwell this week, so she's got the week off, and I'll be doing the intros and the outros, but she was involved in this interview with Ellie, which was recorded a little while ago. Now, before we get into the interview, just a reminder that you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear your feedback, or if you've got a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast that we haven't covered before, feel free to send through that suggestion. And that's exactly how we got this suggestion for today's topic as well. And speaking of social media, some of you who follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram might have seen that uh, Steph's dog Cooper got plenty of love on social media after we did a little post about pets that train with us. So be very interested to hear about your pet that trains with you running or following you on the bike. You can always send that through to us at The Long Munch on social media. We'd love to, to see and, and hear about your endurance pet. But without further ado, we'll get into today's episode with Ellie Pashley. Now, some of you may remember that Ellie has been on the podcast before, back in episode 8B. And the question that particular episode was, do I need iron supplements? And that was back in March of 2021. And at that time, she was still trying to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics in the marathon. Since then, she obviously did qualify for that race. She actually ran the the marathon in Tokyo or in Sapporo, where the the marathon and the race walk events were held. And she finished 23rd with a time of 2 hours 33 and 39 seconds. And just to put that into perspective, if you think that that's not a particularly fast time, remember that it was a very hot race. And in fact, the winning time was 2 hours 27 and 20 seconds because of that heat. Now, given the heat in Sapporo, where the marathon was held, The team, as in the marathon runners and also the race walkers, spent a lot of time training and preparing for the hot weather. And that included trying different methods of pre-exercise hyperhydration, which we'll discuss today. And we have previously discussed this in a little bit of detail with one of the other marathon runners from Tokyo, Sinead Diver. But since Tokyo, Ellie has also become a mum to her now seven-month-old daughter, and so she's just been returning to racing very recently. And you might pick up in this interview, we chatted with Ellie actually back in December. So some of the things that we talk about, like the European cross-country championships that had just occurred the weekend before we spoke to Ellie, that actually happened back in December. We also talk about the fact that Ellie was trying to qualify for the cross-country world championships, which are happening in Bathurst in a couple of weeks' time. So that uh, qualification period has actually come and gone already. Uh, and Ellie was just announced this week, actually, that she is going to be part of the Australian team for that event. So big congratulations to Ellie. And we look forward to, to seeing her there representing Australia on the world stage again, only seven, eight months after giving birth, which is a great outcome. So without further ado, we'll just get straight into this one and hope you enjoy our chat with Ellie Pashley. Ellie Pashley, welcome back to The Long Munch. Yeah, thanks for having me back, guys. So since we last spoke to you, you've had a baby. How's motherhood treating you? 
Yeah, so far motherhood is good. Uh, so I've got baby Tiggy. She is nearly six months old now. And yeah, no, I'm enjoying it. I, I was a little bit unsure about, I'm not unsure about motherhood, but it was something that I wasn't sure how I was going to go with it. But no, it's, so far it's been really fun. Different, of course, but yeah, enjoying it. I think she's she's been a, a pretty uh, easy baby on us so far, so we're lucky. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And how has, I guess, motherhood influenced your training and, and racing? Because I guess that was probably one thing that you were kind of also unsure about. Yeah, so I, I've built back up into training fairly gradually. So I, ha- I had a C-section, so it took me a little bit longer. I, I couldn't really run for the first six weeks or so after I had her. And then I did a walk-jog program. And then I'm just still building mileage back up now. I guess probably the main thing has been the change in training time so I actually have to run early in the morning like <laughs> most people now so that's been a bit of a transition for me <laughs> um, but yeah luckily Tiggy likes to wake up at the crack of dawn so that's made it a bit easier so yeah just I have to fit running in basically around Joe's work and yeah so it's early mornings and then I've just started doing double runs again now too so I'm having to do them on the treadmill in the afternoon uh, while she's asleep so yeah a bit different but so far it's been working okay and I think we're getting into a bit of a rhythm with it now I've only done one race so far so yeah obviously racing will be a little more challenging traveling and things like that but I think we'll just work it out as we go yeah yeah and I remember last time a ritual for you is always coffee in the morning so you're still able to have that and that kind of I guess helps you get out in the morning yeah yeah I still have my coffee before every run so I've got a good excuse not to make the coffees now because I'm feeding the baby first thing in the morning so I've roped Josie into doing that um but yeah no it's just the coffee just happens a couple of hours earlier than it used to but that's okay still still gets me (laughs) up and about every day And what are the plans for for you in 2023? Yeah, so just trying to work all of that out at the moment. I'm going to start the year with, I'll do a a local 5K here, the Geelong 5K, the start of Jan, and then I'm going to do World Cross Country Trials. So World Cross Country Championships is in Australia next year in Bathurst, and the trial race is mid-Jan, which I'm certainly not going to be at full fitness for, but I thought I may as well go and just do it sort of get back into racing at that level again it'll be a good shock to the system so I'll do the trials for that and then I'll try and work out a marathon from there I'd love to try and get two marathons in next year it's the first one's going to be a little touch and go trying to get fit for a marathon by sort of April if I can get into one in the first half of the year but yeah then hopefully by the time I get to the second one I'll have a bit more of a base under my belt and yeah, see what happens. It's all very unknown mm. at the moment. Yeah. Speaking of cross-country, did you guys see the course? For, I think it was the European cross-country champs on the weekend. Did you guys see the course for that? Yeah, I did. I was watching the live stream. It was it was really cool. Yeah. So they, they had like – did you watch the race? Mm. They had the flat section. Mm. Then they had this really nasty hilly section and then they also went through the inside of a castle. So they laid down like a synthetic turf. And they had the runners go through there, so it was pretty, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Did was there actually like because I know there was like a I saw the one of the commentators had done like a walk through the days before on social media. Was there anyone actually like in there playing the piano or anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's because they were running through so quickly, you couldn't really see much. But there, yeah, it was. I don't know. I don't know what was going on inside there, but it looked pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> And um, do do you feel now you're you're a mum that this is the start of the best years of your marathon career, given what we've seen from Jess Stenson at the Com Games and Sinead Diver breaking the national record this year? Yeah, I hope so. Um, I mean, there's definitely it's de- definitely not an excuse, is it? <laughs> because we've seen like all of our best marathoners, what they've been doing in the last few years, and almost every single one of them has kids. So um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that the same can happen for me. But yeah, it's, it, I mean, you've you've still got to do the hard work, don't you, to 
to do that. And you see, I guess these days, I think women are a little bit more supported in getting back to sport whilst having children. So Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll see it across all sports. But yeah, certainly in marathon running, they've been doing it pretty well for a long time now. So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. And, um, yeah, last week we spoke to Dr Chris Irwin about the question, how do I optimise hydration for race day? We wanted to get, I guess, an insight into how an athlete approaches their hydration and specifically we thought of you, Ellie, with your experience with the hyperhydration strategy. So back in, I guess it was 2021, you were preparing for the marathon at the Tokyo Olympics Uh, although your event was in Sapporo further north and it was expected to be about 22 to 30 degrees Celsius at the time, 60 to 80% humidity and you did a training camp up in Cairns as part of the prep for that. You were practising some of your nutrition strategies including pre-cooling, pre-race hydration and obviously we'll focus on the hydration part of it today. So I know a strategy you were trialling was hyperhydration with acute salt loading. Can you tell us what this involved for you? Yeah, so um, we, we trialled a few different things. We were actually lucky we had quite a bit of time up there and we had Jess Rothwell with us who was the team. She was actually like our team manager as well as our team dietitian. Oh. So she had wore many hats that trip. Um, but, yeah, so like we... We'll talk about this a bit later, I guess, too. We trialled some glycerol stuff and then also some salt loading and we played around with different concentrations and different volumes just based on how we felt um, during training. So we we did a mix of doing it before both hard workouts, long runs and easy runs, just um, obviously seeing how our guts handled it at different speeds and things like that. And we actually did the glycerol stuff first and then I transitioned away from that into the salt loading just because I felt like that sat a lot better. Um, And in the end, the one that I went with was 15 mils per kilo of water mixed with 7.5 grams a litre of salt, which ended up being 780 mils with about 5.85 grams of salt. And... Yeah, I, I, the big thing that I found was I struggle with large volumes of fluid and mm. so I had to try and find the happy medium. I could actually, the salt didn't bother me and I could tolerate a fairly salty drink. Um, it was too much fluid. I would, I just had issues with it sloshing around in my stomach whilst I was running. And I think the, the tricky thing with that marathon was there was – so many variables we were basically preparing for worst case scenario which in the end we got with the heat and there were so Mm. many things that went into it that um, we were trying to balance you know optimal hydration but also minimizing stress and I was finding Mm. that if I was trying to get down you know 1.5 liters of water in that set intervals of 20 minutes um, I found that a little bit stressful before a marathon when there's already so many other things that we were doing like the pre-cooling your nutrition stuff all this you know in the morning before a 6am race so we kind of chatted and like I guess between Jess and Jules and we came up with a strategy that I found I tolerated quite well I I didn't find it stressful to sit there and drink that amount of fluid and I knew that my gut was going to tolerate it whilst running and yeah that's what it, it ended up being and I used a mix we tried a few different things Um, But I ended up actually going with noon tablets uh, and some table salt. (laughs) So I think I might, I maybe use four noon tablets from memory, strawberry lemonade flavor, my favorite. And then (laughs) just added, um, topped up with uh, just sachets of salt, basically. And that I found Mm -hmm. quite palatable. And yeah, because we, that was the other thing we, we trialled using carbs in that drink as well and then I yeah. sort of found, yeah, I want, I kept that a little separate. Again, trying to work out what felt best, what sat best in my stomach and also, yeah, the, I didn't want to mess with the way that I'd been doing things too much. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a bit of a yeah. juggle there. And how long before the race was it that you were drinking that drink? So I think from memory it was around three hours before. 
so our race ended up starting at six o'clock it got moved forward so I think we got up at 2 30 or something and and I started doing the drink mixes at around three so yeah in that hour or so that we were having breakfast and getting ready to leave to go to the start line and so yeah I had four drinks of 185 mil um trying to sort of do it roughly within 20 minute intervals but I wasn't too stringent on that on race day just because again I didn't want it to be too much much. for the head Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 Yeah. It's interesting, like when you tried the, the larger volumes in cans, Ellie, and found that that was sort of sloshing around in your stomach still, was that still sort of three hours before that you were having it? Uh, yeah, so I think so. We usually tr- we tried to stick to doing it the same way that we were going to do it before the race. So mm. it might have been somewhere between two hours. I think maybe sometimes we did it two hours before and sometimes three hours before. Again, trying to mm. work out, yeah, getting it close enough but without it being too close that, yeah, we were still going to be feeling a bit full from it. And then obviously you don't mm, want to do it, yeah. you know, too far out and then lose the benefit by the time the race happened. Yeah, yeah. And like you mentioned, like obviously how early you had to get up to do that. Thinking back, if if we took the hyperhydration out of it and you didn't do that at all, would you still have got up at that time anyway or were you, were you getting up extra early because of this strategy in particular? No, in it like... um. In the end, we had to leave to get to the start line, I reckon, at 3.34 o'clock anyway. Um, Japanese okay. Japanese yeah. races are very organised and you get there very early. And we also had to start our pre-cooling protocol quite a way before the race. So um, it, it didn't affect the time that I would normally get up. But it possibly would have if it were a different uh, race scenario. I, like I'm... I'm usually pretty good with eating not too long before a race, so I'm not a person that needs to get up four hours before to have their meal. I can kind of have brekkie not too long before I run usually anyway. Um, but, yeah, for this in this particular situation, it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, cool. And I, I think the other thing I just picked up on there, you were talking about this sort of five, I think it was 5.85 grams of salt, yeah. which is, so that's the salt, so the sodium chloride, so only 40% of that is actually sodium. So people are thinking it's not 5.8 grams of mm-hmm. sodium, it's 5.8 grams of salt. So it's about 2,340 milligrams of sodium. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's for the nerdy part of us, <laughs> Good yeah. to know. <laughs> don't worry. No, it's just make sure yeah. people don't go no. out there and try and yeah. have 5,000 milligrams yeah. of sodium. No, 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 no. I agree, but I was like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so I guess, yeah, that was kind of how you, you found it. What about your teammates? Did you, um, how did they find the, the, I guess, the salt loading protocol? Yeah, everybody, everybody ended up with a different, a slightly different uh, amount, I think. And mm-hmm. in the end, so we were in Sapporo with the race walkers. A lot of the race walkers used glycerol. They are very good at trying, practising and tolerating all of that stuff. I think they do a lot more of it than we do. Um, I think with the marathon runners, only one of the runners and out of six ended up using glycerol. And I think he ended up using the lower range um, one. And then I think the rest of us all did a salt loading program as far as I know. I'm not sure on the details of what everybody ended up with. Um, I know that I was rooming with Sinead and I think hers was maybe similar to mine. Um maybe slightly less salt, more fluid. She she seems to tolerate fluid a bit better than me, um, but maybe not so much mm. the salt. I think the salt, when she did the higher concentration of salt, this is just from memory, I think that messed with her stomach um, more. So she, I know she played around with it a bit too. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, we, we none of us tolerated the glycerol very well, um, mm. but I think most people found a, a good, happy, uh, medium with the salt loading that worked for them and and I mean it were all different sizes different weights too so the volume varied depending on that um, but yeah we had plenty of opportunity to try different different amounts and sort of get it right yeah. and yeah what was it in terms of like with the so going now into the glycerol part of it um, what was it uh, in terms of the symptoms that you you had with the glycerol hyperhydrating strategy severe diarrhea 
severe diarrhea that and don't shy away from it yeah (laughs) severe diarrhea that came on fairly quickly after the last so we all were all in a room together drinking our like you know we had our 20 minute stints I found it really hard to get down and I think the it was a, a volume thing as well for me and we were drinking it with like diet cordial or something um wasn't the tastiest drink I've ever had and yeah yeah, I think I reckon I had to have about 1.2 liters based off my weight and the calculations that they use and yeah it was it was a real effort to get that last one down and then basically as soon as we finished the last one everyone was running off and (laughs) then we all came back together and we're like did anyone else have any uh yeah any gastro issues after that um and I think five out of six of us did um but yeah so and then that was a high dose which is what I think Jess wanted to start with the higher one and see who tolerated it uh and then the others I actually didn't try that again I just the idea of that in before a marathon I was like nah sorry Jess that's that would just stress me out too much. If there's something else I can do, I'd rather try that first. And I was thinking about trying a lower dose of it, but yeah, I just, I felt horrible in the run afterwards as well. And yeah, I just wasn't worth, it wasn't in my mind, it wasn't worth risking that. Um, Cause it obviously it can have a laxative effect, glycerol itself. Mm-hmm. Which and it that's, did. That's what yeah. It yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. had that effect straight away. And again, maybe I could have trained my gut mm-hmm. to get used to it, but I think having to do it m- many, many times, even that I didn't want it to mess with my training either, sort of that mm-hmm. close to the Olympics. So yeah, I was pretty, uh, I didn't really, wasn't interested in doing that again. So that's where we went down the salt pathway. And I think the others, some of the others trialled it multiple times. Um, And I'm pretty sure in the end Liam used it, but I think he was the only one. I think the others all did salt loading. Yep. And was, do you know if Liam did the combo? So glycerol and sodium together? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think the one that we did was a combination when we trialled it mm-hmm. the first time, yeah. So I don't know whether what he, adjustments he made. I know that he didn't do the highest dose, I think. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly of the details, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, technically sodium and glycerol should have similar, maybe slightly different but similar effects and it sounds like maybe just the glycerol dose was too high for the volume of water or something. So in that case, it, it ends up rather than, you know, the water going into the blood and then retaining it along with the glycerol it kind of does the opposite and drags the water into the gut hence the diarrhea which is i mean that's how it's designed to be taken as a, a laxative you know for people with constipation and things like that which is where you buy it typically from a pharmacy and it's sold for for that specific purpose so, yeah. yeah and maybe like yeah maybe yeah. had we maybe had i tried the smaller dose that wouldn't have happened and actually the run that we did after that I'm pretty sure like my fluid retention was actually quite good even despite that um, mm. in the end, but I, I felt quite rotten mm-hmm. whilst I was running, but I definitely didn't lose as yeah. much percentage of body mass as I did on some other runs where I hadn't done hyperhydration. So it worked from that perspective, um, but, yeah, just wasn't, yeah, didn't want to go down that path. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And so when you did the sodium loading, obviously you were able to, you know, retain more of that fluid beforehand. Did you, and it's one of those things that sometimes you do these things and you might perform better, but you don't necessarily feel better on the day until you look at, you know, the time on your watch, whereas other sort of interventions you do and you can kind of quote unquote feel it. What what was that like from your experience when you're actually out there running? Yeah, well, I didn't have any issue on the day with um, dehydration or uh, even getting flu- – like I felt the amount of um, fluid I guess I took on before the race, I felt fine. I didn't have any gastro issues during the race and I drank a huge amount of, of water. We had water at every kilometre um, and I actually tried to have a drink at every single kilometre and I finished the race and I think I had perhaps overdone the water a bit because I was a bit sick at the mm-hmm. end, but I think mm-hmm. my stomach was just full to the brim of fluid. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't have any gastro issue. Considering it was that hot um, and all of those extra sort of variables going into it, it I didn't have any any issues 
from from that. So it's I mean it's hard to know what helped. Definitely the pre cooling stuff we did helped to minimise the effects of the heat in the early stages of the race. It took me quite a while to start feeling warm. I reckon six k's or so. Um, but yeah, from a hydration perspective, I mean, I, I, when I finished the race and went to the bathroom, I actually wasn't dehydrated from what I could see, which is extremely mm. rare for me at the end of a marathon. So I think it definitely worked. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that can happen sometimes with that, the glycerol or the sodium at the start, again, if you probably, if you're, you know, going a bit too aggressive with it is actually it increases the osmolality in your blood. Basically, it makes you more thirsty than you would otherwise be. And I remember when we talked to Sinead at the end of last year, um, we were mainly talking about the cooling side of it, but she mentioned the glycerol. That was one of the things that when she tried that, she just felt desperately thirsty in that period before the run. Did you find that with the sodium or was that okay? Yeah, not. I didn't feel particularly thirsty. I mean, we were probably drinking quite a bit anyway, just um being conscious mm. of what we were about to do. And we, we, we actually used slushies as a pre-cooling method as well. So I was probably sipping on that the whole time, but I didn't, I didn't feel yeah. as though the salt made me uh, thirstier than usual. Right. I think, yeah, yeah. perhaps okay. maybe because it was the gap between then and when we started, I'm not sure. Mm. And probably just the amount of fluid that you were drinking sort of matched that sodium. Like if you had just had that salt in food, for example, without any fluid, you probably would have been thirsty and then gone out and drank something and satisfied that thirst. But essentially you've done that as part of the strategy. Yeah, true. And you spend a couple of hours yeah. before a marathon sort of sipping on water usually anyway. So, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into some of the other sort of more general kind of hydration strategies obviously talked about the pre-event stuff but let's maybe look at the days sort of leading up to the event and then obviously during the race itself so i guess aside from really hot events like in Sapporo do you usually do anything different in the lead in the days leading up to a, a marathon in terms of your hydration compared to just you know day to day in training yeah i think um probably in the week leading into it i'm a little more onto onto hydration I, I drink a huge amount of water anyway that's never really been something that I've struggled with the big thing for me is probably uh getting enough electrolytes in so uh, I think since the whole Tokyo experience I'm better at that anyway but usually leading into a marathon I'll try and have an electrolyte drink each day maybe in the four or five days leading into it um most of the marathons I've done have been in cool conditions so it hasn't really been a big issue but yeah just just to make sure that i'm not just drinking heaps of water and not retaining any of it which is possibly what usually happens so yeah just increase my electrolyte content and then i mean obviously when you're doing a carbo load as well that sort of helps with that fluid retention as as well so doing that for two mm. and a half days leading into a marathon also yeah, yeah, that was going to be my next question actually was how that kind of fits in with your, your carb loading strategy. Do you tend to use a lot of fluids as part of the carb loading or are they kind of two separate things? Like do you put carbs in the fluid deliberately to sort of minimise the amount of solid food that you then need to eat on top of that? Yeah, I do. It's It uh, just makes it a little bit easier to top up your carbs if you're having, mm. you know, like things like Powerade drinks, even soft drink. I'll often have a mm. couple of soft drinks in the days leading in. What else do we usually use? Yeah, so rather than just have like an electrolyte tablet like I might normally, we'll, yeah, use juice, um, Powerade, things like that to get extra carbs as well. Mm. And do you tend to, I mean, obviously you had this, like the Powerade as well, but do you tend to shy away from that a little bit just because like you're going to be drinking that on race day and you don't want to get sick of it before you've even started? Do you have that kind of mentality of this is what I'm going to have when I'm not running versus what I have when I'm running or you don't really care too much? Uh, not really. I don't usually drink Powerade during races. So in my mind, it's often something that I have before. Right, um, okay. Even if I've got a short race, I think it's always been like a, you know, one of those little rituals that you have where I'll have a Powerade the day before, even though it's probably totally unnecessary. So, yeah, no, I'm happy to to drink that in the days leading in and then on race day I usually for my fuel I don't tend to use fluid for my fuel as well just because I've had some issues in the past with if I have to get down a whole 200 ml bottle because I need the carbs from it sometimes when my gut isn't happy with fluid I struggle a little bit with it so I actually have gels and then I drink on top of that to thirst so that I can adjust it and still get the carbs I need in without yeah. the fluid if I'm feeling like my stomach's not liking the fluid. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that probably is a lot more flexible too in terms of like your cool marathons versus a really hot day like in Sapporo. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I've done some really cold ones where, yeah, you just you don't you can easily overdo the fluid side of mm. things because you're actually not really sweating for the vast yeah. majority of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably a good segue to my next question, which is probably more in the days leading up to an event or just sort of day to day between training sessions. Have you ever had the experience where maybe you've been a bit too aggressive with your drinking, say the day before a race? And then you've been up all night having to pee and have like your sleep's been disturbed because you've sort of overdone it? Yep, probably always <laughs> before every race. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I go to the toilet a fair bit during the night anyway, I think because of the amount of fluid I drink in general. Yep. So it's not really a new thing. But yeah, I think being conscious of it in the days leading in means that I potentially do overdo it a little and mm -hmm. yeah end up needing to do that and also before races it's so tricky always you know wanting to be hydrated but not wanting to drink so much that you need to go to the toilet five times before the race starts um yeah. so yes i'm still learning on that one <laughs> <laughs> all right so maybe you're not the best person to ask of what are, what are the sort of telltale signs of when you need to sort of back off the fluid <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> needing to go to the toilet five times <laughs> yeah. before a race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and on the morning of a race where maybe you're not doing that sort of hyperhydration, what would be your strategy instead from a fluid perspective? Do you have sort of a set routine with that or is it kind of just drink to thirst or just have something with you and just sip on it as you're going about your business preparing? Or Yeah, so if I'm running a marathon, I'll often drink like a Morton drink mix in the morning whilst I'm having breakfast and that's I guess getting a combo of uh fluid and carbs and some yeah. electrolytes so I'll and again I just sip on that I don't force myself to drink the whole bottle or I kind of just drink to thirst uh I always have coffee before runs and races so I know that's a diuretic so trying to uh well, not much <laughs> yeah not much not okay much. no, no. Okay, that's good. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm always conscious of that, like trying to, yeah, make sure that I drink as well just in case that is getting rid of any of it. But um, I usually will try to – I'll drink to thirst uh, leading in and then about an hour before the race I try and rein that in just, yeah, so that I'm not going in with excessive fluid in my bladder or anything like that before the race starts, give it time to, yeah. Yeah. get rid of what it doesn't need i guess yeah no that makes sense okay and then during the event as well i think you mentioned before you, you tend to kind of drink to thirst like obviously you know in different marathons and depending on what level you are you know in the, the pecking order in the marathon sometimes you have bottles that are handed to you by individuals or off a table sometimes you're dealing with cups um but in terms of your plan it sounds like it's more sort of drink to thirst or feel rather than have a set plan of i'm going to get like this much fluid at this aid station and this much at this aid station you don't really plan it out too much yeah no i don't and um so the my plan is based around carbs often and it's I usually have one gel every 5k and I try and get about 70 or just over 70 grams of carbs in per hour and then I just take that I usually try and take that if it's on the table at an aid station I, I'll have it attached to a bottle of water mm -hmm. and then I drink um, what I feel like from that bottle and it varies a lot depending on the race and how I'm feeling. And I'll often, again, if it's a hot marathon, in some of the bottles I'll have a, an electrolyte drink mix um, and some of the bottles are just water. If it's a cold marathon, I probably might only have one bottle with electrolytes. If that, I don't bother too much mm. with that. Yep, yep. And have you ever found in a race where you've kind of just gone off feel in terms of how much you drink where you feel that that's kind of not, work to plan in terms of like you finish and thought oh geez i've got really dehydrated this race i probably should have drank a bit more or actually i you know pushed it maybe further than i needed to or do you feel that for you thirst is a pretty good guide uh i feel like for me thirst is generally a good guide probably the only time that it can be affected i think is if you're having issues with your guts and you're mm. struggling to get down what you need i did a marathon in cape town a few years ago and this, I was fairly inexperienced at the time and that was quite warm. That was the first warm marathon I'd have done and it was only low 20s, I think, but it was enough to, yeah, sort of affect me and I was still 
trying to work out which gels I liked. And I think in that race, I definitely underdid the fluid. Again, I think my stomach was a little bit disturbed once we got sort of beyond 30k and that was when it started to get quite warm. I think I missed a couple of my bottles on the table. So that was probably the one time where I feel like I underdid it. And then Tokyo, I think I probably overdid it, if anything. I think Mm -hmm. I was so paranoid about dehydration. And, I mean, we were running mid-race, you were seeing what was happening to people who were dehydrated. Mm -hmm. People were collapsing Mm -hmm. everywhere. And I think part of that fear meant that I just kept drinking and drinking and drinking and probably drank too much in the end. But it didn't – I didn't have any – real issues during the race from it. So I, I don't think it made any difference. But afterwards, I was sort of, yeah, reflecting on it, think I probably went a bit hard on the <laughs> water. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's an important point too that, you know, how much we drink is, you know, it's a behaviour and there's so many different factors that go into that. Obviously, the sensation of thirst is one. The availability of fluid out on course is another one. But, yeah, those other factors there as mm-hmm. well, like, being worried about something, trying to preempt something is going to change your sort of your mindset around that as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, one of the other factors, I guess, that might influence things, and I don't know about your experience with this, is the temperature of the fluid. Like in some races, maybe they do a better job of keeping it cool until you grab it. In other races, it's maybe at sort of air temperature by the time you, you, you access it. And depending on the race, that could be quite warm or not very warm. How do you find that the temperature of the drink influences, I guess, how much you like it, how much you're likely to want to drink it or, or be able to drink it? Yeah, that that's not a big thing for me. Like I'm not somebody that likes cold drinks or I drink water hot out of the kettle sometimes. I drink tap water, <laughs> I drink cold water. It doesn't yeah. – I can kind of handle any temperature. I think in Tokyo it was – excellent because it was all the water was chilled mm. um and all of our drinks came out of the esky like seconds before they handed them to us and even the uh tables that they had for everybody with the bottles of water they were all cold so i mean that was really nice in that temperature and i think that mm. probably encouraged me to drink a lot um, yep. <laughs> but it, i'm not somebody that can't get like a warm drink mixed down or that doesn't doesn't really bother yep. me yeah, yeah. And one of the other things I think, particularly for you know elite level runners, you know when you're working at that pace and with the yeah you know, the breathing rate that you need to be able to sustain that is how you go actually swallowing fluid while you're trying to breathe at that sort of intensity. How how do you find that? Is that something that took a bit of getting used to when you first started out? Yeah, I think so. I think um, having, I mean, we're very very lucky that in a lot of the races that we do, you get personal drinks. So you get a mm. bottle and we often will use like either a pop top bottle or um, a small bottle like that. So you can actually run along with it for as long as you need to. And I might hold it for 500 meters and sip on it as I go. Um, I can't, I'm not somebody that can like down a whole bottle really quickly. And so I think I would struggle with just cups and you know what it's like running with a cup at pace to it spills everywhere and mm. goes all over your face and hardly anything goes in your mouth. So, yeah, that's – I think it, it's something that we practice in training. Like if I'm doing a marathon, there'll be a few workouts where I have tables out with bottles on them and I'm running past whilst I'm doing marathon pace, grabbing the bottle and practicing just getting it down mm. over, yeah, a 500-metre stretch or whatever, which I think it is important to practice. And my first few marathons, like I've – tried to grab bottles and smack them off the table and dropped them and that that has happened before so yeah it's something that's good to practice yep awesome and for those of us who are using cups during a race at aid stations any tips from sort of earlier on in your career where maybe you were using cups a bit more in terms of you know how you grab those i know steph had a little we did a uh a course for for dietitians who are becoming sports dietitians recently and Steph had an aid station set up where they had to practice picking up the cups and you know there's a little technique to it but any tips that you've got about you know how to grab cups and not spill it all over yourself <laughs> no I'd like to hear Steph's tips actually because <laughs> I've never had success with cups I feel like it ends up all over me and none in my mouth so yeah. All right, yeah. Steph, I know this is a, not a visual <laughs> medium, so it might be a bit difficult, but do you want to explain it I think, as best well, you can? I think, I think with the pace that Ellie and some of these guys are going, it's probably going to be spilt. But, yeah. Um, yeah, you basically, you get your index finger is kind of in the 
in the middle L and then I don't know how to explain this and then your thumb and the other finger next to it, it squeezes in. So you're kind of pinching the top of the cup so it forms like a nozzle um, more than like it's so it's not all um, round and easy to get out. So So I guess the first bit there, Steph, is you have at least one finger inside the cup. Inside the cup, yeah, your index finger is inside the cup and the thumb and the other finger on the outside of the cup and then you pinch that in and so then that makes the cup form like a a nozzle. It's kind of squashes. Like a little spout. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So this is this um, is works for paper cups, maybe not for plastic ones. Yeah. 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 Yep. Uh, yeah. And so then I just sip it, on it. Or yeah, go in and one then go. you can and then you can just sort of yeah either sip or go in one go. But it, at least it's kind of reduced that surface area, I guess, for all the water to kind of spill out. Mm. Um, so it closes most of it, but leaves a spout at the end, which makes it also easier to drink from. Mm, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, so you don't just yeah. throw it at your mouth and hope that yeah. some goes in. <laughs> hope for the best and splash everyone else, which they're probably appreciating because yeah. they get the cooling effect. But um, but, but especially true. when it's but, but not so much when it's Gatorade or Powerade or something. Oh, it's just sticky, sticky everywhere. Yeah, I've made that mistake many times where I've thought I was grabbing a cup of water to put on my head and it wasn't oh, no. water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll um add the the link to that technique because I didn't do a good job at explaining it. We'll add the link to the the social media. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um. Yeah. Final thing I was going to ask you, Ellie, in terms of and this is going back to sort of the pre-exercise hydration side of things. Now, just day to day. Are there any particular things that you use or, or things that you do to sort of keep an eye on your hydration? Is it something that you're conscious of or it doesn't really bother you just drink and let your kidneys kind of take care of the rest? Yeah, I don't I, I don't uh, measure anything, I guess, scientifically. Um, I'm extremely anal at always having drink bottles with me at all times everywhere mm. I go, multiple drink bottles. My husband yep. thinks that I've got a bit of a problem with drink bottle <laughs> obsession. So, yeah, that's the, the main thing for me and particularly now I'm finding because I'm actually breastfeeding as well, It's mm. I get so thirsty and it's even more of a juggling act with training, trying to stay hydrated there. So, I mean, my main thing is I guess just look at, when I go to the bathroom looking at the colour of my urine and making sure that it's a good colour. I've never really done any testing on that. And I don't, as far as weighing myself pre and post exercise, we did a lot of that leading into Tokyo, just trying to work out how much fluid we were losing. But day to day, I don't I do not do much mm. of that, to be honest. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I did so much of that in the lead into that race that it's <laughs> been nice having a break from yeah. from all of that. But, but yeah, we did that um, like almost every day I think especially when we were doing the heat training as well when we were doing saunas and things because we used a lot of that information with the rehydrating after those sessions so we were using Mm. a like a protocol where we did 150 percent of what we'd lost and we consumed that within three to four hours I think after the exercise so yeah if I do a hot marathon again I probably will use some of those strategies but your day-to-day I just try and look at that if it's if it's warm I'll have an electrolyte tablet I've got like some premix SIS electrolyte stuff that I'll drink but yeah other than that it's pretty mm. bit of guesswork yep fair enough and so it sounds like even in like even in summer when you're doing say just a long run in training it it doesn't sound like you would do anything different or specific for that or have a, a conscious plan for that because you're drinking quite a bit anyway it's just continue that into into that session yeah, yeah, and it's actually a bit tricky where we live and where we do our long runs because there's no water out in the bush. So that's something that even a couple of weeks ago I actually dropped a bottle on the way, a big bottle of water for everyone because I knew it was going to be hot and we were doing a loop that had no water on it. And even on Sunday just gone it was quite warm and I had 28 k's to run with no water out on course. Mm. So that's that can be a little tricky and, um, yeah, sometimes we will try and plan for that where we'll put some drinks out somewhere. But basically I'm relying on my hydration before it and rehydrating after it, um, mm. which, yeah, you've got to be a little bit careful of as it warms mm. up. Most of the year down here it's pretty cold and crap, so it doesn't matter. Mm. But <laughs> the next few months will be a test. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point because we talked about this with um, Aska Yerkendrup 
a little while ago more so about carbs during training we talked about the fact that you know a lot of runners struggle to get those higher amounts of carbs in compared to cyclists and a lot of it is possibly because they just don't practice it enough in training and this is probably one of the issues why is how do you carry and access that much with you compared to you know cyclists you can stick things on your bike or in your jersey pockets or whatever it's a lot easier to carry around And these days I think it's actually getting better with shorts and things having pockets for gels and even you can get some sports bras these days that have pockets. But, yeah, basically if you're going out for a 40K run, normally in a race I would be taking, you know, six gels or whatever in that time. But on an easy run you just, yeah, you can't be bothered to carry that many. So you have to shove down your top and hope that (laughs) that's enough. Yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, I'm not sure if like with the cycling versus running thing too because we found this a little bit with the race walkers in training whether just the amount of um, like I think running is a little more, well, Steph, I know you do lots of research on this, (laughs) whether it affects your gut more too with the movement. Vibration. Yeah. 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 Yep. So it's not yep, like a, for some that. reason in races it seem, you know, it seems to be okay and we do try and practice it in training but you, it's probably pretty rare that you're taking on the same amount in training that you are in races mm. um, just because sometimes you're like, oh, it's, you know, I'm going to feel sick if I have six gels on this long run. Mm. But, yep. yeah, probably should yep. do that more often. I was just about to say that, Elite, in my head, and I was stopping myself. I was like, don't say it, Steph. Keep it out. <laughs> train your gut, train your gut. I've heard it before. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll hand back to Steph now, and we'll get stuck into our bonus round. Awesome. So um, I don't know if you remember, but back in episode eight, be now when we asked you about your alternative career path you said you'd be a professional basketballer um so al and i are just wondering how those skills are going they're not very good uh, i probably haven't touched a basketball since i spoke to you guys last time that might have been when i was going through a little phase of going to the school here and playing basketball against joe but i have been <laughs> trying to convince him that we need to um concrete our driveway so that we can put a basketball ring up for Tiggy. So I'll get back to you once that's done. Hopefully, uh, yeah, I can work on my career. Hopefully it's not too late. I'm 34, 34, so I should still have a few good years of basketball left in me. Mm. I was going to say, if the running continues on for a while, you might just have to live that dream out through your gym. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think with my height, mm. it's probably going to be, yeah, not good for me or my children, but anyway. um you also mentioned last time that you'd love to run the boston marathon so is that any closer that's funny you say that too because i was talking to julian about this yesterday and telling him how because i'm trying to find a marathon to do next year and i was saying to him how i'd love to run boston and um Nick Bideau, who's my agent as well, I'd also mentioned it to him and they're both just like, no, you can't, because Boston actually doesn't count as a qualifier for anything Mm -hmm. because it's net downhill, even though it's quite a hard course. So, yeah, I think they're trying to encourage me to wait and do that in a year that's not trying to qualify for something. So because next year will be within the Olympic qualifying period, Mm. no Boston next year, unfortunately, but one day I'm going to do it. One day. Yeah. So we're looking at 2025. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. When the basketball mm. career is starting. <laughs> yeah, mm. exactly. Well, I don't know what I, how I'm going to juggle those two. <laughs> and um, what's the best thing about, about being a mum? Good question. I think, um, I mean, what I've probably enjoyed is having like a little buddy to hang out with all day. So, yeah, I mean, being when you're a stay-at-home mum I guess and and training it's sort of there's a fair bit of downtime during the day but it's kind of nice to have somebody to hang out with even if she can't talk back or (laughs) anything like that yet but yeah I think I think that's been more uh more enjoyable than I was expecting so far so I'm sure that's going to get even more fun too once she's a toddler and she's even more interactive and talking and playing and stuff probably will also get a lot more tiring but um, that's okay. We'll work it out. 
And your um, funniest running mishap or most memorable running experience? Um, probably going the wrong way at the New York Marathon. Did I say that last oh, time? Oh, no, you, I don't <laughs> think. No. no yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know how in Australia we go to the left? Mm-hmm. So the way that the marathon course went, so Sinead and I for some reason were leading the race. This is about 5Ks in. <laughs> Not, we, we really shouldn't have been leading the race. I'm not too sure what we were doing there. Um, but we were at the front and then there was this road uh, that was split into two and I think we automatically went left to the left side of a barricade uh, roped off thing, probably just because of our Australian mindset. And everybody mm. else went right. Even though they were behind us, they didn't follow us. They obviously knew we were going the wrong way. <laughs> and the marshal that was on the corner sort of didn't, by the time she told us, we'd already gone past and so we were on the other side of the road and we had to get back and duck under the rope to get back into the right side of the road. Oh, I think I remember seeing Sinead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right yeah. yeah. So yeah. Sinead tried to go under and then she got tangled in the rope and then I ran into her because <laughs> oh, she was stuck in the rope and then so we were both like just it was actually quite funny. Like it was one of those things where, yeah, we couldn't do anything but laugh. And we'd been like slightly dropped from the pack and we were just laughing at the back, like what ha- just happened. And then, yeah, I mean, in the end it was fine. We got back up to them. But um, yeah. after that I was like, I am not leading anymore. I am sitting at the back of this pack. And then Sinead went straight back to the front. I was like, see you later. I don't think I saw her again for the rest of the race. Yeah. <laughs> And um, final question, if you could have dinner with anyone, um, who would it be? I would have dinner with, oh, you know the guy who, you know the um, the book The Russian Affair? Have you guys read that? It's about the doping in Russia. Oh, oh yeah. So yeah. the guy that was the whistleblower who was the anti-doping official whose wife was an 800-metre mm. runner who was doping, I'd have dinner with him because I think oh, he would have some very, very interesting. interesting stories, yeah. I find yeah. all of that quite mm. fascinating. So, yeah, he, mm. uh, I can't remember exactly what his name is. But yeah. Yep. No, neither can I. Yeah. Is, is it the same guy in the Icarus movie or a different no, whistleblower? No, different whistleblower, yeah. So that was, yep. yeah. Um, but it was all around the same time that it was coming out. So Gregory mm. Rutenkov was the guy that was helping them dope in the lab. Um, yep. This was a guy that was a drug tester and uh, he okay. was having to sort of cover things up because, yeah, he'd turn up somewhere and they'd be like, oh, no, no, you can't test these people today or test them instead mm. or whatever. Um, mm. But he was in this really tricky oh. situation where his wife was also doping. I think and I was... found his name. Is it yeah. um, Vitaly Stepanov? Yes, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Now mm. I'm going to read it. I think he's in hiding somewhere, so I probably won't be able to have dinner with him, but um, it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, Elle, and um, T's done really well. Haven't heard a peep out of her, so. Still asleep. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's been no worries, super guys. interesting about your, your experience, and I know the listeners will find that really valuable if they're considering it for an event that they're planning for. So, yeah, thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. Big thank you to Ellie there for that chat and obviously congratulations again on selection for the national team for the World Cross Country Championships coming up in a couple of weeks' time in Bathurst. Always great to participate in a home event like that as well. Now, I guess to summarise all of that, I guess the key thing there would be looking at the pre-exercise hyperhydration was the difficulties that not only Ellie but her teammates had, particularly with the glycerol when they first tried it. Uh, That said, I guess if we look at the way they did it, they went to sort of the highest fluid volume and the highest glycerol dose on the first trial. And so a lot of them had obviously significant gastrointestinal issues, diarrhea and that sort of thing that resulted from that and perhaps had had they started with a lower dose that may not have been an issue perhaps also had they started with a lower volume of fluid and slowly worked their way up they may have found 
their tolerance of that fluid would be a bit better. And Ellie obviously talked about the fact that the race walkers had spent a lot more time practicing these sort of techniques before the Olympics compared to the runners. And maybe they did better because of that or whether it was because the actual mechanics of walking versus running makes it a little bit different in terms of tolerance. It's not 100% clear, but I think the key thing there is that we do know that you can train the gut to get better at coping with any kind of fluid volume. And so, you know, starting small and working up might be a better way to go. But obviously, as Ellie said, you know, they had their pre-event camp up in Cairns. It wasn't that long before the Olympics, and they didn't have a huge amount of time to try that. And it was coming into a crucial training block. So they didn't want to compromise that training block by having to do a whole lot of gut training at the same time. So ultimately, they decided to go down the path of sodium, which Ellie tolerated a lot better, and a much smaller volume of fluid with that as well. But I guess if we're to wrap up the topic more broadly about how do we optimally hydrate, we sort of talked about this last week, but we've got that practical model, that WUT model, so looking at weight, urine color, and thirst. So if your weight's within 1% of what it normally is when you know you're pretty well hydrated based on past experience, then you're probably okay. If your urine color is sort of a pale or clear um, color, then again, probably a good indication. And also if you're not particularly thirsty, you put those three things together and you'd be pretty confident that you're fairly well hydrated without having to guzzle you know, liters and liters of fluid the day before a race. Because as Ellie just talked about, the fact that you have to be up all night peeing really disturbs your sleep and your preparation for that race that you spent so much time training and preparing for. You don't want to ruin it because you had a terrible night's sleep the night before the race. So usually drinking to thirst, if you've got 12 hours or so since the last training session, unless it's been like a massive session or a, you know, a race, stage race or something like that, that will usually be adequate to restore the fluid that you need. And as we said, careful not to go overboard with that. But if you feel like you are a little bit underdone on the fluid side, having about 5 to 10 mils of fluid per kilo of your body weight about 4 hours pre-exercise or 3 to 5 mils if you've only got, say, 2 hours from the time you get up to the time you have to race, then those are pretty sensible strategies just to top up the fluid, let the body deal with that, let your kidneys deal with that and pee out any excess before you have to start your race. In terms of the sodium loading, obviously we talked about that last week as well. There's different concentrations that you can use of that, but trying to get that close to that blood concentration is probably the way to go. The volume of fluid that you have with that, obviously Ellie went for a smaller volume of fluid in the end, probably more around the kind of 10 to 15 mils per kilo, but you can go as high as say 25 mils per kilo of your body weight of fluid, provided that you've got adequate glycerol or sodium with that. And as we mentioned last time, getting that dose of glycerol or sodium right is super important because if you get it wrong, either you're peeing out all the excess because you didn't take enough of those things, or you're getting all these sorts of gut issues like Ellie experienced with the glycerol because you're probably taking too much relative to water. So because of that, we generally recommend getting professional support if you're going to try one of these particular strategies. But again, as we said in last week's episode, or last time's episode, I keep forgetting we're every second week now, you don't need to do this in a lot of situations. Ultra-endurance exercise, there's probably no need for hyperhydration. If you're someone that's happy to slow down through aid stations and get water, there's really no need for hyperhydration. It's really for probably mostly elite athletes in those sort of very high intensity events where the cost of slowing down is going to ruin your race or where your sweat rate is going to be so high because of the extreme heat and the pace that you're going at therefore you're producing so much body heat that it's going to be prohibitive to actually drink enough fluid to stay well hydrated during the race and there's actually only a small handful of situations like an elite marathon in hot weather at an olympic games where that kind of strategy would be particularly useful. So for most people, just go about your business, drink normally, look at your, your urine, your weight, and your thirst, put those three things together, and that gives you a pretty good indication of how you're going hydration-wise. Okay, so let's move on to our next episode. And actually, I can't tell you the topic for the next episode yet because we've had a bit of toing and froing with potential guests and we haven't been able to lock in exactly which one we're going to get for our next episode. What I can say, though, is our next episode is actually going to be our 99th episode of the podcast. And we hinted at this a few weeks ago, but we're going to have a very special episode for our 100th episode of the podcast, which is coming up in 
four weeks' time. So really looking forward to that, and we'll tell you in the next episode who we're going to have and what we're going to talk about for our special 100th one. But just a reminder, if you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And also a big thanks to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate that, and it helps grow the podcast over time. Also, just remember that if you do have a particular question in mind and you're new to the podcast, welcome. We have more than 50 episodes now, or 50 previous questions, I should say, that we've answered in often A and B episodes. So you might like to go through the back catalogue there and see if there's something that will be helpful for you. And just bearing in mind that a lot of podcast apps only show you the last few episodes. So sometimes you need to click back and load up all the previous episodes to find them all going all the way back to November of 2020. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on, and then it will come up into your feed straight away whenever a new episode is posted. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've heard us talk about it before on the podcast, let them know, and then you don't have to answer it. They can uh, go and, and listen and get the answer for themselves. But other than that, I'm going to fill in for Steph and say we will love and leave you. And we will see you in the next episode in a couple of weeks' time.